This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Each week on our show, you'll find a new deep dive into a case. And you can join my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, as we discuss the case together. We created this show to give victim stories exposure, to focus on the victims and make these cases about them. And by doing that, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. So I talked to you about how Jacob was getting super into genealogy, remember? Like he was tracking down all of our family lines, finding out all this information about our ancestors. So did he get it done? Yes, he got a little obsessive. Like he was going ham on Ancestry DNA. And it was like cracking me up because he spent two full days like completely immersed in creating our family tree. When you track down your family tree through Ancestry.com, they will provide documents that they have available with information about your ancestors. So Jacob is showing me an old newspaper archive with the obituary of his grandma's mom's third husband or something like that, like somebody we have never met. And he thought this guy was interesting because he had paperwork documenting a concentration camp he was in back in Switzerland before he then immigrated to the United States. And then, unfortunately, it seemed like he took his own life. So this is why Jacob's making me look at this old 1974 newspaper clip published by the Post Register here in Idaho. But what caught my eye was a different story on this page. So Jacob's showing me the obituary of this guy, his like grandma's mom's mom, third husband that took his own life. And then I saw something else. The headline had the word murder in it. So of course I was like, okay, wait, let me read that. And once I did, I was hooked. This case is a bit different than anything I've covered before, first being the fact that it's not just like a Googleable case, if that's even a word, but you know what I'm saying. You can't just hop on Google and search it up. Yeah. There's like not an endless amount of information readily available. All of my information today came from old newspaper archives and public records like marriage licenses, divorce documents, birth certificates, school yearbooks, and even old Navy and Marine muster rolls. It was fascinating to piece the case together little by little, all stemming from that one news article I just happened to see. But there's another reason that it's different. This is a case where you're left wondering who the justice system actually felt. There are circumstances in this case that I have never heard of in all of the cases I've researched. And no matter which way you slice it, it's a tragedy all around. So with that, are you ready for today's case? In the early morning hours of June 16, 1974, Everett Hoffmeister hears a knock on the front door to his home. He answers to find Sheriff Wilcox of Bonner County with a somber look smeared across his face. And Wilcox informs Everett that his wife, 41-year-old June Hoffmeister, was in a traffic accident. She was found dead upon discovery of the crash. 
Everett looks shocked before he lets out a scream as he falls to his knees. This tragic news was a devastation to the Hofmeister family. In the blink of an eye, five young adults and kids no longer have a mother, Everett no longer has a wife, and June's parents have lost a child. The Hofmeisters lived just on the outskirts of Sandpoint, Idaho in Bonner County. This is a town in far north Idaho, near the borders of Washington State and Canada. It's just an hour drive north of Coeur d'Alene. And it's also situated on Lake Pend Oriel. So it's a super pretty place surrounded by mountains and pine trees and water. I think Coeur d'Alene's like one of my favorite places ever. And you just took us there one time. Yeah, that we got a nice house on Coeur d'Alene Lake. Yeah, and it is like so pretty up there in northern it, Idaho. It really is. Like I'm in Idaho, but where I'm at is just not cute. Not gorgeous. You can drive like 30 minutes and it's pretty. But no, not right here, right? (laughs) I always wonder, like, why did you choose right here to settle Idaho Falls? Probably on flat land. land. Out of all the very pretty places. Not in the mountains. Just rolling hills and, like, sagebrush. But very nearby is, it's really pretty. But this northern Idaho is, like, one of the prettiest places ever. I love it up there. So this is also a small town, one where everyone knows everyone. In the 2021 census, the population of Sandpoint was just over 9,000 people, but it's grown a lot since 1974. Now it's a destination resort community known for its great skiing and its beautiful landscape, but it used to be a lumber town. And I couldn't find the population way back in 1974, but I did find that in 1990, the population was just over 3,000. So we can assume that it was even smaller 16 years earlier when June is found killed in a traffic accident. Needless to say, her death rocks this town. June and her husband Everett had grown up here. They were well-known and loved members of the community. And even though Everett was born in Brooklyn, New York, he didn't consider that home. Idaho would become home to him. It seemed that Everett came from a military family since his dad, Everett Hofmeister Sr., was accounted for on an old Marine muster roll for World War II. Everett was born on October 24, 1931, and his dad enlisted in the Marines in September of 1937, just before Everett's sixth birthday. By November 2nd of that year, he was serving on the USS Vigineers before being moved to the USS Restless in 1942. We all know that military families have to often move around, so I assume that the that Everett's family did the same until finally settling down in North Idaho by 1945 when he's 14 years old. And this is where he attends Spirit Lake High School, and he meets June Darlene Smith. She was born in Helena, Montana on June 4, 1933 to parents Gerald Hector Smith and Fern Sarah Smith. From Montana, the Smiths moved to Idaho, where June would grow up. Everett is just a couple years older than June, so when they get engaged following her graduation, he is stationed in San Diego, California with the United States Navy, clearly following the footsteps of his father and joining the military. After he graduated, he attended North Idaho Junior College in Coeur d'Alene and Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington, before joining the military and pursuing a career in law. June had attended Kinsman Business University in Spokane, Washington, which would be useful for her to aid where she needed through her husband's career. 
June and Everett's engagement was printed in the local newspaper. And back then, they literally printed everything into the newspaper. It was wild. Like, they published engagements, who got marriage licenses that week, who filed for divorce that week. <laughs> I, I like I was, that. Like, I like I mean, when you had a baby, like, their name was in the newspaper. They they would publish babies yeah, and stuff. I think I have yours. Oh my gosh, that's crazy for me to think because I don't feel like they do that anymore. Yeah. Maybe they do, but which okay, like post celebrations, like a baby, a marriage, whatever, but like the divorce filings, I'm like, <laughs> that would suck. You know, you're trying to keep your like situation under wraps and it's announced there they go posting it in the news yeah the newspaper I just was shocked at that maybe a little TMI posting the divorces for the newspaper but the headline for June and Everett's engagement read fall wedding planned by Spirit Lake Girl and it was published on September 6th 1953 this article details their engagement and how the wedding is planned to take place that fall Their marriage license is obtained on October 3rd, 1953, which only makes me think of on October 3rd. He asked me what day it is or it was. Do you know what that's from? No. From Mean Girls. Oh, is that like a line in Mean Girls? Yes, that everyone knows. I didn't. Like October 3rd is a Mean Girls day because of it. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. They get married by a Roman Catholic clergyman on October 10th, 1953, when Everett is 21 and June is 20. June's sister, Helen Smith, her brother, Clifford Smith, and her parents are over the moon for June and excited for her future on this special day. The couple lives there near Sandpoint, where they raise their five kids, three girls, Colleen, Gail, and Lynn, and two boys, Craig and Eric. I had a harder time finding out information about their children, And they're probably still alive or likely still alive. So I didn't want to dig too deep into them. So I'm not sure where, like when they were born. But by the time June passes away at 41 years old, it seems that Colleen, Craig, and Lynn are into their early adult years, while Gail and Eric are still minors. Everett became a lawyer and was actually the former prosecuting attorney for Bonner County. At the time of June's death, though, he was now running his own private practice there in Sandpoint. The family were devout members of St. Joseph's Catholic Church, where June was the choir director, and she was active in the community. At the time of her death, she was a member of the Altar Society, the Mountain View Club, and the Mother's Club. She was just such a genuine soul that poured a lot of love into her family. On top of all those groups, June and Everett were longtime members of the Marriage Encounter Group associated with their church. I looked up a description of this organization and it read, quote, Marriage Encounter gives couples the opportunity to sign off, get away, and examine their lives together in a real and realistic way. It's based on the belief that marriage is the most significant relationship on earth. If you believe that, too, Marriage Encounter is for you. Yeah, I mean, does not sound like a bad group. Sound like she did a lot of good work. Yeah, she was like really involved. And they seemed like they were pretty big in this group, like kind of leaders of this marriage encounter group. 
So working on their marriage was important. In fact, on the night June crashed, the couple was actually working on speeches they were set to give at a marriage encounter retreat in Cheney, Washington. They had attended a group meeting before coming home to work on these speeches. They left this meeting around 11.40 p.m. on June 15th. Everett is reiterating the events of that evening to Sheriff Wilcox, who, remember, came to the Hoffmeister home to inform Everett of his wife's death. And Wilcox had actually stopped at the crash scene first, which was just about a mile from the couple's home. Everett tells officers that around midnight, June decided she was going to head into town to type up those speeches at his law office, which is just three miles from their home. And after she left, Everett let his eyes grow heavy, and before he realizes it, he's asleep. He wakes up a little startled around 3 a.m., and his head is foggy as he comes to. He's a little confused that June hadn't woken him up after typing down at the offices, but then he realizes that she isn't even home yet, and that seemed odd. This is when Everett picks up his home phone and dials to the sheriff's office, which sits just across the street from his law office. And he's like, hey, it's Everett Hoffmeister. Can you guys look across the street and tell me if the lights are still on in my office? But they tell him that the lights are not on. It's black over there. He tells them that June had headed there a few hours ago and she still wasn't home. Now, I'm not sure why Everett called the sheriff's office instead of his law offices. I would assume that his law office had a landline phone, but maybe he did call there first, and then when there was no answer, he calls the sheriff's office. Regardless, this sparks a little concern for June's well-being, but it wouldn't take long to figure out where June was. In the early morning hours of June 16th, Gail Rickman was driving on Schweitzer Cutoff Road just two miles north of Sandpoint when he spots a small pickup truck that rolled down a hill. And it was June. A rosary is held for June two days later on July 18th, 1974. Her funeral mass is officiated by Reverend M. John Donovan the next day at St. Joseph's Catholic Church. 41-year-old June Darlene Hoffmeister was buried at Pinecrest Memorial Park in Sandpoint, Idaho. Her headstone reads, The love you gave continues to grow with each generation. So you might be wondering what crime was committed here. But at the time of her death, no one looked at this incident as a crime. The community was grieving a terrible accident. Until the autopsy report is revealed about one week later. A news story was published in the Post Register of Idaho Falls on July 23, 1974. And this is the news article I first came across that led me to this case. While Jacob was showing me his great-great-step-grandpa's obituary, I noticed a headline reading, Murder Said Death Cause. And this is what I read. Bonner County Coroner Del Coffett has ruled that the wife of former prosecuting attorney Everett Hoffmeister was murdered and did not die in a traffic accident. Coffett said June Darlene Hoffmeister, 41, died of strangulation. Mrs. Hoffmeister was found in the wreckage of a small pickup truck July 16th off a county ro road north of Sandpoint. Prosecuting attorney Dan Featherston said state police were investigating. Hoffmeister, now in private practice here, has told authorities he 
that he noticed his wife missing early July 16th when he awoke from a nap at his home. So this was the very first article I came across, which just piqued my interest because not only is it about an old crime I had never heard of, but it's about a woman who originally is believed to have died in this traffic accident, only to find out through autopsy she's murdered. Yeah. Like, they didn't say at the time of her death, this is suspicious. Just a week later, it slaps everybody in the face. And I just thought that was crazy when I read it. So you said her funeral was the next day, or they just had, like, a mass? Her funeral was, well, what would... What's like a mass? Oh, I thought you said they had like a gathering the next day. Okay, yeah. So they had a rosary. Oh, a rosary. And then they had on July 18th, two days after, and then they had a funeral mass. Is that where she's actually like an actual funeral? That's what I was thinking. But so then. So I didn't know if her body got buried or not. Yeah. So I guess I would say I don't know whether. They had the funeral and then they took her body for the autopsy or if they did the autopsy like that first day or two or if she was buried at a later time than when her funeral was held. Those things, I'm not sure. But within a week, they do have the autopsy report. Bonner County Coroner Del Coffett helped perform the autopsy alongside Dr. Frank Kimball, who was a pathologist out of Spokane, Washington. And this might seem strange because the death was in Idaho, a completely different state than Washington. But Sandpoint is right on the border of Idaho, only an hour and a half drive from Spokane. And it was ruled that June's cause of death was strangulation. The manner of death is ruled a homicide. The community is in an uproar because who would kill June Hoffmeister? But as the months pass by, the suspicion of Everett Hoffmeister grows strong. I was going to say her (laughs) husband. Yeah, of course. Like, that's always the first person you look at, right? So following the first article I read, I started searching for more information. And I came across an old newspaper archive that briefly mentioned the motive that would lead investigators to suspect June's husband. It's said in this article that Everett was being accused of having an affair with one of his legal secretaries named Phyllis. Oh, the plot thickens. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's like the I, typical sounds kind of like a, I don't know, mundane word to use for a murder, but it uh, is. It's a common, common motive. Yeah. When a spouse is murdered by a spouse, cheating is often the common denominator across a lot of these cases. So as I continued my search for the full story, I came across Everett Hoffmeister's obituary. This year in 2023, he would have been 92 years old, but he passed away on November 30th, 2010, when he was 79 years old. I'm reading through this obituary when I read that Everett was survived by his wife of 35 years, Phyllis Hoffmeister. And I was like, wait, that name sounds familiar. So did he marry the woman he was accused of having the affair with way back in 1974? Sounds like it. Yeah, Phyllis and Phyllis. So that these are the next two things I read after that first article. And I was like, hmm, it seems like there's something here. 
It turns out that seven months after Everett's wife, June, passed away, he married Phyllis Yvonne Quass on February 3rd, 1975 in Clark, Nevada. She was a lifetime resident of Sandpoint, Idaho, but slightly younger than Everett and June, just three years younger than June and five years younger than Everett, being born on July 27, 1936. And after Everett marries Phyllis, the two move out of Sandpoint, just over the border to Spokane, Washington. Everett had dissolved his law practice in Sandpoint and said that his kids were being harassed in school over the situation. And I do think that could be true. Like if your dad was accused of murdering your mom, kids at school are awful. So they're obviously going to like pick at you for that. Yeah. So that could be a great reason to move. But this was not a great look for Everett. And was he allowed to? Yes, because at this time he like wasn't charged with anything. Mm. So he married Phyllis seven months later before really an investigation is even complete. And the man Phyllis had been married to when the affair allegedly started was still living in Idaho and he was running his mouth because he was angry about the situation. So rumors flew and the investigators didn't think the marriage or the move was a good look either. By August of 1975, Everett would go to trial for the first degree murder of his wife, June Darlene Hoffmeister. And although this all looks circumstantially pretty suspicious, it is more complicated than what you see on the surface. Remember, there's a question I said you would be left with in this case. Who was failed by our justice system? June or Everett? So before we dive into the trial and all of the conflicting information presented, I am going to give you a little background on Phyllis, since she is Everett's wife as he goes through this trial for his previous wife's murder. Like I said, she was born and raised in northern Idaho. Her parents were Carl and Francis Quass, and she had three brothers, Richard, Carl, and Kurt. Following high school, Phyllis marries Tommy L. McClelland on November 10th, 1953. She's 18 and he's 20. Coincidentally, this is exactly one month to the day after June and Everett got married that same year. So the couple, Phyllis and Tommy, they have three kids together, which I believe are Susan, Gus, and Dean. And through obituaries, I was able to determine that together, Phyllis and Everett had shared nine children. And we know that June had five of those kids. So this means that Phyllis had the other four. Um, her fourth one will come later. So Phyllis and Tommy were married for eight years before filing for divorce on October 6, 1961, when she is 26 years old. And she is the one who files the paperwork, noting extreme cruelty as the reasoning. And then the divorce takes another two years to be finalized. And I'm guessing that this has to do with adding children to the mix and all the details to work out. So they take, you know, it takes a long time from when you file to when you're officially divorced. And then they are officially divorced by June 25th, 1963. Two months later, at 27 years old, Phyllis marries 30-year-old George Benny Tibbetts on August 2, 1963. And most people called him Ben. In the newspaper articles, he is usually referred to as Ben. 
Ben had been married once before as well. In 1955, he married a woman named Donna, but by April of 1958, they're divorced before he gets into this relationship with Phyllis. And the couple shares Phyllis's fourth child, Rick Tibbetts. So this is the man Phyllis is married to when the alleged affair with her boss, Everett Hoffmeister, takes place. And Ben was one of the three suspects police had investigated in June Hoffmeister's death. Officer Irvin Stuker would testify at the trial that during the time Everett had been interviewed about his wife's death, he was not even a suspect yet. The first two suspects in the case were Gail Rickman and Ben Tibbetts. Ben, like I just said, is the ex-husband of Phyllis, and then Gail is the man who found the truck on the morning of June 16, 1974. So Gail was driving home from work, and he enjoyed taking like a scenic route after his night shifts just to relax before heading home. And while he is driving, he notices the emergency blinkers flashing from the bottom of the hill. He stops and he yells down to see if he would get a response, but when he is met with silence, he decides to go for help. He would also testify later in Everett's trial that just two miles before coming across June's car, he saw a car speeding fast down the road. He describes it as a low dark car with round taillights. And I'm not sure if he's inferring that this was June's truck speeding like ahead of him and that she crashed just before he came across the scene, or if he's saying there was a suspicious car driving quickly away from the scene. I just could not tell from the testimony they reported. Yeah. But he does say a low dark car and she was driving a truck, but it was a small pickup truck. So I don't know. Irvin had to testify to this when the defense team insisted that Everett was denied his constitutional rights during interviews that take that took place that same month of the crash and the defense actually wanted to discount any additional testimony from Irvin Stuker or officer Jack Booth about their interviews with Everett. And the jury was even taken out of the courtroom for a third of the day on this day of trial because the prosecutor and the defense were just going at each other about this. The two officers had to be questioned and cross-examined privately without the jury present. The judge presiding over the case ends up denying the claims that Everett's constitutional rights were denied because at the time Everett spoke with police, no warnings were warranted. They were just talking to him about the incident in general. They weren't like questioning him as a suspect. After this, one of the officers, Irvin Stuker, is allowed to give his testimony and be cross-examined a second time, now in front of a jury. I'm not sure what led police to clear Gail Rickman and Ben Tibbetts, but ultimately they narrow in on Everett Hoffmeister. Now let me back up a little to those months between June's death and Everett's trial. The community was on edge hearing that a local woman was strangled to death. Alongside the rumors being passed ear to ear about her husband's possible involvement, there were also other rumors. In the 1970s, there's satanic panic. So if you don't know what that is, it's basically unsubstantiated theories about satanic cults wreaking havoc through like abusive satanic rituals. And that's like There's a lot of murder cases that you'll hear were rumored to be done by Satanists and people thought they were killing for sacrifices. Anytime a crime was committed, people were like, it's definitely got to be a cult who worships Satan that's like operating in our area. (laughs) (laughs) But in reality, these murders were usually fueled by the same motives we see today. Lust, money, jealousy, burglary, etc., 
They were usually committed by the everyday monsters living among us that blend into society until they're exposed. So rumors were spread about June's murder being done by a satanic cult in the area. Police have to put out a statement in the newspaper asking residents to stop spreading misinformation about a killing cult on the loose. And once everyone's attention shifts to June's husband, they start getting antsy for answers. The town whispers among themselves, wondering if he's not being charged because his status in the community. I mean, he was just the county prosecutor a couple years earlier, which the county prosecutor is responsible for deciding which cases to prosecute on behalf of the state. So was he holding weight there still? He had been in that position for six years until 1972. Multiple people would testify at his trial that he was a good man. A statement from a local district judge named Dar Cogswell was read to the jury detailing Everett's truthfulness, truthfulness, (laughs) Everett's truthfulness, honesty, and veracity. A fellow attorney from Priest River named Lick Lamana testifies in front of the jury that Everett had an excellent reputation. A friend of Everett's from the Marriage Encounter Group testifies that Everett was known to be truthful, honest, and have integrity. But Bonner County Sheriff Robert Wilcox testifies that he had indeed seen Everett in a rage on several occasions. However, he ends this out by saying he totally does have a good reputation, though. And what gets me, the only thing that really gets me is the multiple testimonies about Everett being known for honesty and truthfulness. Like that was in multiple people's statements. And it's like, well, he. But just not to his wife. Yeah. Right. Like, okay, so he's known to be honest and truthful to you, (laughs) but he was cheating on his wife. So, so <laughs> like he might in that situation in his marriage he wasn't honest, but in everything else in his life he's an honest man. Right. That's basically what they're testifying to. But on that same note, like having an affair doesn't automatically make Everett like a terrible person. It doesn't make him guilty of murder. He could rightfully have a very good reputation in the community, even if he is like not the best in his marriage I just thought like the exact words truthful and honest like maybe you should use something else like just say he's a good lawyer he has a good reputation like he's nice maybe I don't know (laughs) I just felt like they were sort of proving the prosecution's point where they were saying you can appear like you're you are something but then be not truthful yeah So it's this incredible reputation that leads to an article being published in the Sandpoint Daily Bee newspaper written by M.H. And the first sentence read, this murder case hodgepodge has gone on long enough. And they go on to point out that it had been three months since June was, quote, hit on the head, then strangled. The article accuses top officials of refusing to proceed in the case, even though there is a clear suspect, quote, because the wife of a prominent man is slain. Every other so-called prominent person refuses to even test the heat, much less sniff the air for foul smoke. And if none of those elected to do the job will do it, the rest of us may as well hang it up and begin doing just as we damn well please. If you don't like someone, kill him. So you can definitely, yeah, you can feel the frustration in those words. Like this um, writer is trying to make a point, but the article continues by saying that this would not be, that this is not a good example being set for the community. It ends with, 
But this isn't the first case of a hushed up murder in Bonner County. There was another not even a year ago, and that one hasn't been cleared up either. And I don't know yet what case this article is referring to, but now it's my future mission to figure it out. Uh. That he said there's another hushed up murder. Yeah. Didn't say what one it was, but I'm going to try to figure it out. It might be hard, but there wasn't many murders in Bonner County, so it might actually be easy to find. Well, her story just seems like it, uh, like the circumstances were kind of fishy. Like she was going out to make, what was she doing again? Copies or write something? She was going out to type up these speeches at the law office at midnight. So, yeah. Like who would do that? Right. Like. Why would you go out at midnight? Like, why wouldn't you just wait till the next day? Yeah. That's the thing with this case is everything about it is suspicious. But then can they prove that their theory is correct? Not really. Oh. So it's so hard. Yeah. So the Bonner County prosecutor at the time of the investigation is Dan Featherston, and he had served in this position since Everett had left. And they very much knew each other, but I'm not sure if they were friends. But by late late September of 1974, just two months after June's death, Dan asks that an outside prosecutor take over the investigation, quote, due to my personal association with the family of the deceased, I feel that an outside prosecutor would be more able to objectively carry the case through. That makes sense. And he made the right decision there for sure. So with that, Boise attorney Thomas Frost is assigned to the case as special prosecutor. He starts looking into the case by going over what had been done so far. And once he concludes that review, he starts an investigation of his own. We know that just months later, by February of 1975, Everett and Phyllis are married. One question I have is, why did they go down to Nevada to get married? I'm not sure if you caught that, Mm -hmm. but earlier when I said they got married, they got married in Clark County, Nevada, and that is Las Vegas. Well, Las Vegas is in Clark County. I did catch it because that's where I got married. (laughs) I was just going to say, you know better than anyone that a quickie wedding can happen in Las Vegas. I don't think we've ever told that story on here, have we? I don't know. But I mean... You can go down there and quickly get married if you just want to elope. Yeah. Not quite what happened. She did have a full wedding, but... We forgot our marriage license. They forgot their marriage license. We didn't have a full wedding. We had like a full reception. I mean, we did a... Well, you like walked down the aisle. We did a fake ceremony, but we weren't really married. Well, you didn't know it was fake till like that day, right? Because I remember... Well, yeah. We thought it was going to be the real thing. Yeah. So we were like at your wedding venue and the bishop came in and was like, so do you have the marriage license? And you, I remember you being like, no, didn't he get it? And then we found out that no one had gotten it. So the wedding we were all getting ready for was not going to be (laughs) the real wedding. (laughs) Yes. It was a fake wedding. Oh, And then we went to Vegas that night. Yeah. So instead of flying out of Salt Lake City to go down to their honeymoon, they drove to Vegas, what, all night after your reception, Mm -hmm. got married. Caravaned (laughs) in my uncle's van (laughs) with my dad and stepmom and aunt and uncle. Yes. Because you guys didn't want to 
be sleeping together before he got married, right? Yeah. That was something they didn't want to do. So they drove all the way down, got married, like, what, early morning hours then? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And then flew from Las Vegas to your honeymoon? No, drove back to Salt Lake. Oh, you drove back to Salt Lake? Uh Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's terrible. And they hung up a little, like, sheet in the van (laughs) for the back row and was like, okay, there's your privacy. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) On the way back. As a joke. Like, yeah, right. Oh, that is hilarious. That's one of the funniest stories, I think, ever. Well, Shannon's like, I knew you were the right woman when they said that when I said I didn't get the marriage license and you were just like... You didn't get that mad at me. <laughs> You're like, what could I have done then? You just said, okay. We'll go get it after. Like, we didn't get it. We had just, like, had all of you kids together. So we had seven kids over Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Planning a wedding. And no one, like, we didn't even think about the marriage license. <laughs> just showed up to the wedding. Which I think it's usually the guy's responsibility, technically, but I don't know. So you're like, he should have gone. I don't know either. Me and Jacob went together. I don't know. It's both our faults. Yeah. So you can go down there and just get married. But what I was wondering, I didn't know if they went down there to just make it easy and quick because they did have, you know, they were older, like in their 40s at this point, or Phyllis was almost 40. And they had all these kids together, too. They had nine kids total. A lot of them were adults. But I also wondered if her divorce to Ben hadn't gone through yet or if there was some sort of paperwork type reason they did that but can you get married in another state if you're not divorced in a different state no and this is 1974 so would they have known in las vegas i don't know that's kind of what i was wondering like did they have communication between states at in 19 well this is 1975 by this time but in 1975 did they have that communication where they could look up if people were married I, I i don't know probably not yeah so i didn't know if that was also maybe a reason i could not find a divorce record anywhere for ben and phyllis it was weird because all the other divorce documents were easy to find her divorce to tommy mcclellan popped right up i even have the divorce document from ben's first marriage but i just could not find theirs and i wanted so badly to know when phyllis and ben did divorce an exact date but I couldn't figure it out. So I'm left wondering if that has any reason to do with eloping in Las Vegas. Huh. Possibly, possibly not. So just one month after Everett and Phyllis are married, special prosecutor Thomas Frost calls for a grand jury. He wanted this not only for an indictment, but because grand juries have subpoena power where they can force witnesses to show up and testify. Just after this is conducted, Thomas says publicly that there were a number of witnesses that testified at the grand jury. But one of Everett's defense attorneys, Thomas Mitchell, so two Thomas attorneys, both on different sides, writes to the publisher of the Sandpoint Daily Bee, Pete Thompson, and says, no, there were not an abundance of witnesses. There was only one witness named Howard Scott. Now, a grand jury is completely private, and what goes on during this process is sealed, so we will never know exactly what went down and which lawyer is telling the truth. However, I tend to believe there were definitely more witnesses than just Howard Scott, because he would be a strange choice as your one and only witness to call when you're looking for an indictment. 
Howard is a friend of the Hoffmeister fam, and he lives there nearby them. Well, his fingerprints were found all over the inside of the pickup truck June was found in. On the surface, this seems super sketch, right? Like, why are your fingerprints in there? Yeah. But it turns out that following the discovery of the crash site, the truck is towed to a street in Sandpoint where it is just parked for hours before police take it into the Chevrolet garage for examination. Fred Hart was called to testify because he was not only the man who drove June's body into Sandpoint for autopsy, but he is also the one who towed the truck and it was in front of his home that the truck was parked for those hours. Fred ran two businesses in conjunction with each other. He drove a wrecker and he had an ambulance service. So this is why he did both of these things in June's case, which super weird. Didn't know back then you could just like run an ambulance business and go pick up people. <laughs> Can you still do that? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> you have to have certain like licensing and stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, that was like shocking to me. When I first read the sentence, like he towed the truck and drove June's body to the hospital in the ambulance. I was like, what? <laughs> like he's working as a tow truck driver and a firefighter, but no, he just owns the two businesses, which was even more strange. It is Idaho. Yeah, it is Idaho. And it was a small town. So you never Things know. do happen there. <laughs> so during this time that it's parked on the street in front of his house, multiple people gather to gawk at the scene, which like, uh, I understand that you might not be able to take your eyes off of a crashed and bloody truck where this tragedy took place. Like the morbid curiosity might make you stare, but it seems super odd that it's reported, quote, several people got in to climb around in it. Like, don't do that. In the truck? <laughs> yeah. So that is crossing the line. Like, I get that you would maybe be curious seeing this truck that's all bloody, but like, maybe just look at it from afar. Don't go get in it. Yeah. Why Why would you want to climb over dried blood? Seems a little like distasteful, but it also tarnishes a crime scene. Even if it wasn't a crime, a death investigation still had to be done. So it was just odd. And the evidence inside the truck was completely tainted because of this. The defense would also argue that even towing the truck away from the scene tainted the evidence because in order to move it, it had to be tilted in a seesaw fashion. Because of this, the defense says that all blood flow evidence was eliminated. Although Dave Hare, a Bonner County Sheriff's Chief Deputy, testifies in Everett's trial to identify 16 pictures of the interior of the truck. He said that these pictures did provide evidence to the investigators of the direction of blood flow. However, those pictures were not admitted as evidence in trial, so the jury couldn't actually see these pictures. Dave was just testifying about them. Anyway, all of this is why Howard Scott even gets pulled into the case, the family friend, because he decided to climb around inside the truck June had just died in, and he got his stinking fingerprints all over the place. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. So annoying. He climbed around in it, or he was like towing it? And no, no. Frank towed it into the front of his house, oh. and then Howard is one of the guys who, like, it said several people got in it, so they must have just passed it. And maybe he knew it was June's truck because they're neighbors. It's a small town. But he gets inside of it, and his fingerprints are all over. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
I just do not believe this is the only witness that the prosecution would bring to the grand jury. But again, they're super secretive, so who knows? Ultimately, the grand jury does bring forward an indictment for Everett Hoffmeister for battering and strangling his wife with premeditation and forethought. Oh, how'd they get him on that? The battering. Yeah, blunt force trauma. Yeah, we'll end up seeing someone that testifies, a pathologist that testifies, does see like a blow to her head, but that blow to her head is also, it could go with the prosecution side of things or the defense's side of things. But the grand jury believes he battered and strangled his wife, so they bring forward the indictment. And the judge I mentioned earlier, Judge Dar Cogswell, the one who gave that statement about his reputation, he was the one first appointed to the case because he is from Sandpoint, but clearly he knows Everett on a personal basis, so he does the right thing by requesting that a different judge be appointed. Multiple judges are considered, but after three different district court judges in North Idaho are disqualified, the Idaho State Supreme Court Justice Charles R. Donaldson appoints the office of the 4th District Judge Court, Judge Edward Lodge. At first, Judge Lodge sets a court date for August 1st at 1.30 p.m. in district court there in Sandpoint, Idaho. And at this hearing, Everett pleads not guilty to the first-degree murder charge, and the judge actually orders a change of venue for the trial, deeming that a former district attorney could not get a fair trial in the county he served, which I agree with. Like, you would probably want to change the venue for that, and both the prosecution and the defense agreed on this. Yeah. So the trial is officially set for October 15, 1975, in Lewiston, Idaho which is in Nez Pierce County. And side note, Everett's birthday just happens to fall during this two-week trial since it's on October 24th, so he turns 44 years old during the trial. The jurors were set to be sequestered, meaning they had to stay at the Ponderosa Lewis Clark Motor Inn, and they were not able to have any outside communication with the world during that two-week trial. Oh, wow. Yeah, crazy. So... Everett, he hires Mike Homevich from Spokane, Washington, and Thomas Mitchell from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, as his defense team. Now, in the months following June's death, Everett's attorneys file a motion with Bonner County for the release of an autopsy report, saying that the coroner, Del Coffett, legally has to file the report with the county clerk. They claim that the family has been wanting to see the results of the autopsy for themselves, and even though they have demanded that Dell comply with the law, he refuses. The petition also lists that the petitioners believe the death was accidental and not homicidal. And listed as the petitioners are Colleen, Craig, and Lynn, the Hoffmeister's three oldest children, and Everett Hoffmeister as the parent and natural guardian of Gail and Eric. So at least at this point in time, June's children seem to believe that her death was accidental. Of course, they don't think that their dad was capable of doing this. And there is nothing stated later on that they have ever changed their mind on this. So I'm going to assume that this is still their stance to this day. They thought like the accident was accidental or that the dad did it accidentally? I think they believed it was like a car accident. Okay. So in response to this petition and being called out for not complying with the law... 
coroner Dell comes back and he is like, no, you're not understanding the law correctly. He says that he did file a report with the county clerk, but not the full autopsy report. That section of law that Everett's defense attorneys refer to does not specify that the autopsy report be turned over, just that a report is filed. So he probably created like a different report. That's kind of confusing, but he probably just created a general report of his findings, but didn't upload the specific autopsy report. Yeah. I'm not sure if the family gained access to the report through this petition or if they didn't see it until evidence was shared between the prosecution and defense. But by the time they go to trial, the defense does have the autopsy report. During the prosecution's opening statements, Special Prosecutor Thomas Frost tells the jury that he will provide them with evidence that Everett and his legal secretary, Phyllis Tibbetts, were tangled up in a love affair and that on the night June Hoffmeister died, she had no reason to go to the law office. He said that June was dressed scantily clad for a cold night and that she has had no notes with her to even type up those speeches she was supposedly going to write up at the law office in town in the middle of the night. I looked up the definition of scantily clad because I did not know. Oh my God. According to Google, I'm assuming you probably know, it means like very little clothing. Not wearing much? Yeah. And according to Thomas Frost, what he means by this is it was a cold night and June was not wearing a coat or a jacket. Mm. The defense attorney then opens up by saying Everett's seemingly scandalous marriage to Phyllis seven months after June's death was not as it seems. His client remarried only to benefit his children who just lost their mother, and they moved because their kids were being bullied. And he also says that through witness testimony, a different story concerning June's death will emerge from what the prosecution claims. The defense had motioned four different times to dismiss the charges against Everett leading up to the trial, but all four were denied by Judge Lodge. Curious spectators swarmed the courtroom in Lewiston, Idaho. 150 people were crowded in. There weren't even enough seats, so about 60 people are left standing as they watch. Bonner County Coroner Del Coffett testifies that he called for the autopsy of June Hoffmeister after arriving at the crash site. While examining the body there at the scene, he found a concerning mark at the base of June's neck. This was accompanied by small hemorrhages on her neck and her face. They're called petechiae, right? Yep. Petechial hemorrhages. They're basically ruptured blood vessels. Little capillaries. So, and these occur above the area of constriction. So if she was strangled at the base of her neck where that mark is, it makes sense that these are found just on her neck and her face. He also testifies that when he was helping to move June's body out of the car, he did move the gear shift. But he could not remember what gear it was in before he put it into park. So I don't know if they were wondering if it was like in neutral or if it was in drive. But he could not remember. On cross-examination, the defense lays into Dell about how evidence of blood flow was lost due to the fact that he washed June's hair following the accident. They also claim that Dell did not call the proper officials in a timely manner after discovering the strangulation mark. They say he waited for more than five hours to make a call. 
And I'm not sure who the proper officials are that they're referring to because he discovered the strangulation marks at the scene where there were also police officers present. I'm assuming he pointed out his concerns to them there, but I'm not sure what the steps would have been after that. They might be referring to contacting the pathologist that would help him conduct the autopsy. I, I, don't, I don't know. Also testifying is Dr. Frank Kimball, who performed that autopsy with Coroner Dell. He was a pathologist at Kootenai Memorial Hospital in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And he said that before being strangled, June suffered a blow to her head just behind her left ear, which left her unconscious. But this blow did not kill her. She was strangled afterwards with a ligature. This was determined by the strangulation mark and the hemorrhages covering her neck and face. Nine pictures were taken by Dr. Kimball and they were admitted as evidence. He also says that there was a scrape found near her belt line, which could have been caused by the seatbelt. He testifies that he thinks it was probably made before she died, but he can't be certain. So this kind of plays into the defense. And he says that the blow to her head caused damage to her brain, which indicated to him that she was not hit in the head by a moving object, but that her head hit a stationary object. And the defense rolls with this. That statement was perfect for the picture they were going to paint. They said that as June's truck went down the hill and rolled over, she hit her head, which then knocked her unconscious. It was then that they claimed the sweater June was wearing got caught on something like the gear shift or the knobs inside the truck. And when the truck came to a halt at the bottom of the hill, it was the sweater that strangled her to death. The prosecution disagrees, of course, claiming that the defense is introducing a red herring to the jury to take the focus off of their client Everett. While the defense said that Dr. Frank Kimball did say the death could have occurred within seconds of the rollover, the prosecution points out that Dr. Kimball also said that death by strangulation would have taken several minutes. The defense also points to the fact that June was not hit in the head. Instead, her head hit an object. They state that this makes it clear. June was killed by, quote, means other than human. But not so fast, because you can look at this two different ways. June could have gone off the side of the hill in her pickup truck, resulting in a rollover crash. She hit her head in the process, and as she's being tossed around, her sweater snags on something, and then she's strangled by that sweater. If she was knocked unconscious, then the strangulation taking several minutes still fits this narrative, because she would not have been conscious to escape the position she was in inside the truck. I do have one question here though. If Coroner Dell was at the scene and he has to move June's body with other officers, couldn't they have testified to what position June's body was found in? Like pictures were taken and presented to the jury. So they also would have been able to see how she was found. And if she was strangled by her sweater, wouldn't she have been found in the same position? That's what I was just wondering. Like, wouldn't the sweater be on the gear? Right. Like, everyone would have seen that at the scene, and the pictures would have, like, proved that, and then we wouldn't even be in court, Yeah, right? Why are they just guessing? Like, when I say it, it, I mean, it, it does actually sound like it could make sense, where she is knocked unconscious, and then, you know, she gets caught up, like, 
okay, that does seem possible to me. The only thing that seems weird with it is that no one would have noticed that. Yeah, at the scene. Yeah, and if he discovered a strangulation mark on her neck, if she was in that position, he would have had to discover that strangulation mark after moving the sweater. Yeah. Right? That's what I would think. So it would have been obvious, I think, I don't think her body could have moved from this position after after it killing her. But none of them testify that this is something they saw. It's never mentioned. Not even the defense argues that this is what's, what was seen. Unfortunately, I could not find any indication of how exactly the truck was found or where her body was found inside the truck. If I knew those two things, it might help me make up my own mind in this case. Because if she had her seatbelt on, like the scrape near her belt line might point to, wouldn't she still be strapped in? I just wish I knew the answers to these little details, like whether she had her seatbelt on or not. Was the truck on its side? Was it upside down? Was it right side up? Was her neck being held on by something? Yeah. The prosecution said that Dr. Kimball's testimony did not rule out the possibility that June's head was shoved into a stationary object by another human. Because they're saying, okay, maybe she wasn't hit in the head, but she could have had her head bashed against something. But wouldn't the car have shown that? Well, this is the prosecution. So they're saying like out, not in the car, like she could have hit her head before. Like they're saying if Everett did murder her, he first hit her head into something, whether he pushed her and she fell resulting in a head injury or whether he intentionally bashed her head against an object, a table. I don't know. Yeah. Afterwards, the prosecution believes he then took a flexible object because it does say she was strangled with a ligature and used it to strangle her. So then to cover his crime, he would have then staged the accident scene, putting June into the truck and directing it down the hill. Mm, Yep. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Those are like the two sides in this case. And if he did stage this scene, how would he have gotten back home? I mean, there's no mention that I could find about this, but to theorize, if this is what happened, Everett said June left home at midnight, and then he woke up three hours later at 3 a.m. The truck was found off a back road instead of the highway that took a straight shot into town, and the crash also happened only one mile away from the Hoffmeister home. So let's say Everett drove the truck out there, staged the scene, and then was alone to find his way back home. If he ventured home on foot... It takes around 10 minutes to run one mile and around 20 minutes to walk a mile. So we have like a three hour time frame from his account. Yeah. But even if we narrow it down due to the fact that June's time of death was said by the coroner to be around 1 a.m., that still leaves a two hour time frame, which in my mind is plenty of time to have driven a mile, staged the scene, booked it back home and then clean up at home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's possible, but did that actually happen? Well, there's one more piece in Dr. Kimball's testimony that may point more towards June's death being an accidental crash. Through toxology testing, it's determined that June was legally drunk at the time she died, and it could have caused her to be incoherent while driving. Well, she wouldn't have driven to the office to write a speech at midnight. At midnight if she was drunk. That's true. That is true. So he probably got her drunk. Yeah. You could literally look at it either way, but that is a good theory. I didn't even think of that. 
like getting her like drinking with her that night to then make it look like she crashed due to alcohol yeah yeah so whatever like lens you're looking at this case with you can make it fit fit the prosecution's case or the defense's case there was a liquor investigator named jack booth i mentioned him earlier he was one of the officers that was testifying when they took the jury out for like a third of the day because the prosecution and defense were arguing that him and someone else weren't like shouldn't be allowed to testify so jack booth was set to take the stand but he does not end up being allowed to testify because of that argument between the prosecution and defense so we don't even know what he had to say but finding out that she was legally intoxicated at the time of her death led me to question something that i mentioned earlier remember sheriff wilcox who informed everett of june's death he had asked everett why june was driving the back road instead of the highway and everett said she had been in an accident in the recent months so she didn't like driving on the highway anymore well could that accident have been alcohol related was she driving on the back roads to have a better shot of going unnoticed while driving under the influence which i hate to question anything about a victim and anyone honestly who has died because i just feel like you should only say kind things about people who have passed but whether she is a victim of murder or victim of a car accident it kind of has to be considered with the evidence presented but i hadn't thought about it the way you also said it so Uh. but i don't know now let's move into testimony about the scene the first on the scene was Officer Pemberton, and he was called to testify about the events that night. After getting the call from Everett around 3 a.m. indicating that June was not home, Pemberton checked the law offices. After determining that no one was inside those offices, he heads out, driving towards the Hoffmeister home, checking the route he believed June would have taken, so that he could see if she maybe had broken down on the side of the road. During this drive, he comes to the intersection of Highway 95 and the Schweitzer Cutoff Road. The highway is the route straight into town, and the Schweitzer Cutoff Road is where June is found. At this intersection is where he comes across Gail Rickman flagging him down, and Gail tells him there's been an accident, and then he leads the way to the crash site he had just discovered. Officer Pemberton approaches June's car and immediately checks her pulse, her eyes, and her temperature, coming to the determination that she was already dead. The officer then made a call to the sheriff, the prosecuting attorney, and the coroner. Let's say Everett didn't walk home. Was there someone left there to drive him home? Yeah. And then he made the call as soon as he got home? I don't know. I don't know. Did they interview Phyllis? I'm sure they did, but she doesn't testify in trial because she's his wife. And maybe that's also why they got married, because you don't have to testify against your husband. Um, And so in all the new old news archives, they didn't really mention anything of what she said. Mm-hmm. Anyway, during the time that Officer Pemberton is waiting for the proper proper authorities to arrive, he takes photographs of the scene, and 14 of these pictures are introduced as evidence. So here's the pictures of the scene. Again, I just feel you would have seen June strangled on her sweater in these pictures. 
But during his testimony, Officer Pemberton was instructed to describe a diagram of the accident scene. He pointed out marks that were made by the truck when it crossed over the embankment, and he referred back to a lot of measurements he had taken while on the scene. And he is testifying for the prosecution. But during cross-examination, he admits that several measurements he had taken that day were left out of the report he would file about the scene. The defense team asks him why he would leave out certain measurements, and he replies with, I forget I'm human. I don't know if he means he forgot just to include some of the measurements or he forgets why he didn't put certain measurements in there. Yeah. Were they important ones? Yeah. I'm not sure if they were just like not important ones or, and the defense was trying to just make it seem weird that they weren't in there. Yeah. Not really sure because he said he forgot. Officer Larry Darling also testifies as he was second to arrive on the scene. He described the marks left by June's car as skid marks, which would play into the defense's case, and he said that he thought the truck maybe rolled over just one time. He did not make a report of the accident. I'm thinking probably because Officer Pemberton did. I don't know if every single officer is supposed to make a report. I'm not sure because I'm not in law enforcement. But Sheriff Sergeant William Kice, a.k.a. Bill, testifies that there was bloodied hair found on the steering column of the truck June was found in, but admits that investigators are not sure what happened to this evidence because it disappeared by July 18th, two days after the crash. Now, the steering column is just behind the steering wheel, so I'm not sure what evidence, like what this evidence would have even indicated without knowing exactly how June was found, I can't really determine what it would even point to. And there are pictures of the hair on the steering column that are presented. I'm thinking the defense just brought this up and that this evidence was lost to say that law enforcement didn't do a good job investigating. Yeah. I feel like whether she did die in an accident or whether she was already dead, bloodied hair could have gotten on the steering column either way since she was in a truck that rolled over yeah officer bill also says that investigators collected multiple items from the scene including hair samples june's clothing scraping from under her fingernails and a bloody pillow found in the truck all of these items were sent to the fbi lab in washington dc but i'm not sure what results came from these tests because they were not mentioned in what i could find so i'm assuming nothing much but even scrapings under her fingernails i'd be curious if they still had that evidence because i don't think they had very good dna testing in 1975. so could they even tell if she had someone's dna under her nails uh, yeah. But also, she was, according to the pathologist, knocked out when she was strangled, so she probably wouldn't have anything under her nails anyway. Now, I'm not sure if the bloody pillow stood out to you guys, but it definitely did to me, and it seems like this was something everyone was looking at with a question. The defense did not want the pillow admitted into evidence, saying that it could have just absorbed blood from the floor of the truck. This also makes me think that maybe the truck was found right side up if the pillow is collected off the floor. 
Well, Judge Lodge, he allows the prosecution to admit the bloodstained pillow for ev- as evidence, but he directs the jury to only consider the pillow for its size and texture. They were ordered to disregard any evidence of bloodstains. So he's, he's sort of meeting the defense in the middle on this because they didn't want it at all. He is letting them admit the pillow, but no bloodstains on it can be considered as evidence. But I also never understand that in a jury because it's like, do you really think people can like just forget some of the things they saw? Like when they're like, no, actually disregard that. That can't be evidence. It's like, well, I still saw it. I know. Like, I feel like it would still. Yeah, it's still in my brain. Like make me think something. I don't know. It's just always funny to me when they do that. Like they let them see something, but like don't look, but don't really consider it. So he tells them to consider it for its size because Everett told officers that June had taken the pillow with her to go type up those speeches at the law office because she didn't want to adjust the chairs. I guess she was bringing this pillow along for like extra height. But prosecutor Thomas Frost tells the jury that there is evidence June was taller than all of the legal secretaries who worked in the office, so she would not have needed a pillow to sit comfortably at the typewriter. June and Everett's 19-year-old son, Craig, also said during his testimony that he had never seen his mom using a pillow while typing at the law offices. I think he testified for the prosecution, but I don't think that's always a choice. Yeah. Like, I don't necessarily think that means he thinks his dad did it sometimes the prosecution will just call you yeah so the evidence that investigators later collected at the Hoffmeister home were interesting items I'm going to take a guess here and say that the home was not searched until the autopsy determined her manner of death to be homicide so I'm thinking about a week after the crash Inside, they collected hair samples, a shoulder harness from the truck, and papers that had blood smeared on them. This is a huge find, and it led police to look at Everett with even more suspicion. These items were also sent to the FBI lab, but the defense did criticize that it took between 3 to 14 months for the investigators to actually have the items tested. Oh, and those bloody papers, which were the only thing tying the Hoffmeister home to the crash, through testing, it's determined that the blood is not human. It is, quote, beast blood. Oh. Beast blood. I thought, what a weird description. So I think they mean animal blood. I was going to say animal The defense says, quote, after thinking they had a tie for three months, it gets pretty hard to back down and they haven't backed down yet. Meaning that they think the prosecution is just continuing to go forward with it, even though their like main tie to Everett, like physical evidence is turns out to be nothing. Yeah. The prosecution team says that the defense just tries to fit things into their evidence, leaving out key points. For example, they claim that the defense had tried to make a big stink about whether the window of the truck was rolled up or rolled down when June crashed. Officers on the scene had testified that the window was rolled up, but the defense kept pushing that maybe it was rolled down. Quote, the defense expects the jury to assume any keys, papers, and purse flew out of the truck in the rollover. And this statement was interesting to me because it sounds like there were no keys to the law office or the Hoffmeister home inside the truck. There were no papers with speeches written on them that June was going to type up and she didn't have her purse with her. 
And the prosecution is trying to say that the defense is like, well, maybe the window was down and they just like flew out. No. Was the area not searched? Like, I'd assume you searched. I don't know. They might not have. I know. So that is the defense's point. Like, well, the prosecution is saying she didn't need to go to the law office. She obviously didn't go to the law office. She didn't have anything with her except for this pillow. There was a lie detector test also taken by Everett. It was given to him by Del Brannon, the Washington State University police chief and polygraph examiner. He testifies in court, but without a jury present, saying that Everett did pass the lie detector test given on August 20th, 1974, and Dell did not think Everett was responsible for his wife's death. However, this was not allowed to be presented as evidence to the jury because Judge Lodge was like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure more has to be done to determine if polygraphs are even admissible evidence and I can't guarantee the results. And he was definitely right to rule that way because we all know now, A, how I feel about polygraphs, like your pass or fail is ultimately going to come down to who is giving you the test, but also they have been determined not to be admissible in court. So at this time, they must have been like, it must have been up to the judge to allow it or not. Oh, yeah. But I don't think they're allowed no matter what now. So there are also vehicle tests done on the truck. But if you've looked into a lot of trials, you'll know that the defense and prosecution can always find experts that contradict each other. Tests were done at the Washington State Crime Lab, and Edwin Stewart, who is the head of North Idaho College Crime Lab in Coeur d'Alene, would testify for the prosecution. He says that he was able to determine that the truck left the road only between 9 and 13 miles per hour. That would be weird. You know, that seems like it plays into the prosecution's theory. And through a bunch of mathematical equations and the scratches he observed on the truck, he explains his theory of how slow the truck veered off the road and he believes it only rolled over one time. But the defense has William Cronick testify for them. He is a consulting engineer from Boise and he says that he could not determine the speed that the truck was moving when it went off the road. And he says that no one could determine the speed with the information they had at hand. He also uses mathematical equations and physics theories to explain why determining the speed was not possible. After he observed the scratches and the dents on the truck, he determined that the truck moved in a tumbling motion down the hill, and he believes it's highly likely that June's sweater caught on something, ultimately strangling her. The jury was actually able to view the truck, which had been moved into a shed in Lewiston, just behind the Pierce County Courthouse where the trial was being conducted. One of the prosecution's main witnesses was, of course, Ben Tibbetts. During his testimony, he recalls coming to Everett's law offices in February of 1974 to visit his wife at work. But when he walks in, he sees an odd scene. Everett and Ben's wife, Phyllis, are embracing each other. So he's like, what the heck's going on? <laughs> like, this is not cool. And that's when he claims that Everett, exp- Everett, and that's when he claims that Everett explained he is in love with Phyllis and that he wanted to marry her. However, Everett does deny ever saying these things to Ben. 
Then the defense starts cross-examining Ben, creating a bit of doubt for jurors about his testimony, because during this questioning, he admits that in December of 1973, just two months before the alleged affair, he did hold a shotgun not only to himself, but also at his wife Phyllis. She was able to get help and Ben was taken to the Kootenai Memorial Hospital where he was admitted for treatment of depression brought on by a drinking problem. So, you know, not great behavior. Don't point a gun at your wife. And then Rick Tibbetts, Phyllis and Ben's son, testifies that after June's death, Ben was incoherent from drinking one night in August of 1974, and he started ranting about how Everett needed to die. I think this testimony was just presented to make jurors distrust Ben. While his behavior seems alarming and dangerous, and I think it is both alarming and dangerous, there's also like a sliver of me that thinks... At least that statement to his son was just made out of pain from like a broken heart following the discovery of affair of the affair and the fact that this is probably around the time Phyllis is literally leaving him so she would marry Everett a few months later. But definitely the gun thing, super weird. Not cool. So maybe the jury could not trust Ben with his claims that an affair did occur. But there was evidence to back up these claims. It seems that outside of whatever interactions they had in the law office, Phyllis and Everett met up on a little trip traveling out of Spokane, Washington, an hour or so drive from Sandpoint to Denver. Now, I'm not sure if they traveled like by plane, bus, or train, and I can't figure out if they were traveling south, like to Denver, Idaho, because there's a Denver, Idaho, which would be a four-hour drive from Sandpoint, or if they were flying from Spokane to Denver, Colorado. But I don't think Denver, Idaho has an airport. I'm thinking they flew. And if they were driving to Spokane, wouldn't they just make the four-hour drive to Denver, Idaho? So I'm going into this assuming that they're going from Spokane, Washington to Denver, Colorado. Okay. On this little getaway. So hopefully this will make sense to you. Wes Thomas, who worked as a United Airlines accounting fraud investigator out in Chicago, was hired by the prosecution. He was able to find and present a ticket that was traded in, which this is why I think they flew because he works for the airline. I don't know if he's looking specifically into his airline or just because he's like a fraud investigator. He was able to find different tickets for different things. Anyway, originally the ticket was set to go between Denver and Boise, Idaho, but it was traded for a Denver to Spokane ticket. The signature of the person that traded this ticket in was Mrs. P.Y. Hoffmeister. So the P.Y. they are saying is for Phyllis Yvonne, and she is just using the last name Hoffmeister to sign for it. Maybe so it's not obvious that there's like an affair going on. The ticket that the original was traded for was also more expensive, and William was able to share a document detailing that the rest of the fare was paid for by E. Hoffmeister. There is a second ticket that West is able to produce, which was a same-day round-trip ticket between Denver and Spokane. It was set to arrive and leave on February 26th, and it was signed by a Mrs. Hoffmeister. So is this another ticket signed for by Phyllis just posing as Mrs. Hoffmeister? Or could June have like caught on to something fishy, 
going on and found out using a round trip ticket to confront her husband because like the next evidence presented from the hotels, it seems that they were both in Colorado for a few days. Like, so like, could June have bought a round trip ticket? Like, I think my husband's having an affair. I'm going to go check flat because it's set to fly down and come back on the same day. Oh, or what did Everett go down there first and then Phyllis met him or vice versa. So the manager of a Holiday Inn named Bruce Fulton was able to testify about the AmeriCard charge slips he obtained that were signed for on a room from February 24th to February 26th. And they were signed by a P. Hoffmeister. So this is... They're assuming this is Phyllis P. Hoffmeister. Another manager of the Holiday Inn, Jean Romero, also testified using a registration slip, three long-distance telephone slips, restaurant bills that were all signed for by Everett Hoffmeister. The registration determined that there were two people in the party there at the Holiday Inn. Now, after the prosecution wraps up their side of things, Everett takes the stand in his own defense, and he does admit to having an extramarital affair. So now it's confirmed. This did happen. But he claims that he only had sexual relations with Phyllis one time while they were on a rendezvous in Denver back in February of 1974. He says that the affair ended after this and that he was filled with guilt because he loved his wife, June, completely. I mean, did it end? You married her right after she died. So did it really end? Did you really love June? I don't know. So something that stood out to me was that when the prosecution rests their case and before the defense presented their side, they actually, the defense actually asks to speak with the court outside of the jury's presence. So once the jury is out of the room, they ask Judge Lodge, the defense asked Judge Lodge to acquit Everett, saying that what the prosecution presented was lacking greatly in evidence. Their case rested on hearsay, rumors, and speculation. It was an extremely circumstantial base, like case based on the affair. And the judge will not acquit Everett because he said that it's just not possible unless there was absolutely zero convincing evidence that was presented. So he is saying he thinks there is a convincing argument against Everett, but he actually agrees with the defense that what the prosecution presented did not seem to be enough evidence for a first degree murder conviction. Which at the time in Idaho, at that time, a first degree murder conviction constituted a mandatory death sentence by hanging. Yeah. I mean, you would hope with a conviction, there would be overwhelming evidence. Since it was mandatory, they would be hung to death. And remember, you know, a trial, you are supposed to convict only with if you have no doubt. In closing statements, the defense says, quote, I know of no circumstance in this case that points to murder. The sweater strangling June is more reasonable than any other testimony you have heard. I have never stood before a jury with this kind of anguish. Please, for God's sake, don't find him guilty of a crime he never committed. Except they didn't prove that the sweater strangled her. I know. They did not prove the sweater strangled her, but in trial burden of proof does fall on the prosecution so the prosecution would have had to prove that the, that the sweater did not strangle her but they couldn't i guess they could have because there was no proof that it did 
I just, I really wish I knew how she was found. So Special Prosecutor Thomas Frost ends by saying, quote, Everett Hoffmeister made a deliberate, cool, and calculated decision to kill his wife. His was the decision to kill or not to kill, and his was to kill. The motivation was the hypocrisy Everett was feeling as he was having a love affair while also acting as a leader in the Catholic Church marriage encounter group, which that wasn't really talked about a lot in the jury, but we have seen time and time again where like someone is acting as some sort of leader or they need to keep their reputation. Yeah, that becomes like a motive. Yeah. On Wednesday, October 29th, 1975, the jury is sent off to deliberate. When the verdict is read, Everett's family celebrates with hugs and kisses when he is pronounced innocent. I couldn't find any mention of how June's family felt about her death. Did they support her husband or did they believe he was capable of this? Well, they they probably didn't support her husband after he married Phyllis that soon after <laughs> yeah you will see in a lot of cases like family support and then when they find out about an affair they backtrack that like with scott peterson like her family supported him a hundred percent in the media and then as soon as they found out about the affair i think the mom was like why did he kill my daughter but in the law just because you cheated doesn't mean you killed As Everett walks out of the courthouse just a few minutes later as a free man, he announces that he will be running for the position of Attorney General of Idaho on the Democratic ticket so that he can, quote, tell the taxpayers how their money is squandered needlessly and so he can correct the abuses he knows of by state investigators not only against him but in other cases as well. He goes on to say that the whole reason he ever ran for Bonner County prosecutor was because of abuses and incompetence by the county prosecutor who came before him. I don't believe he ever won the position of attorney general because I saw no mention of that, but he did go on to still practice law. In total, he was an Idaho attorney for 40 years before retiring in 1999. Following the trial, he did file a damage lawsuit against multiple people, including Dan Featherston, the Bonner County prosecutor that served after him and requested that the case be moved to another prosecutor. And the special prosecutor brought onto the case, Thomas Frost, was also named in this lawsuit. Others listed were County Coroner Del Coffett, Pete and Adele Thompson, who owned Penn Oriel Printers, Inc., and the Sandpoint Daily Bee newspaper. Everett was seeking $330,000 in damages under the claims that he was damaged by a wrongful murder charge, the way officials involved handled the case, and by the newspaper. A U.S. District Judge Ray McNichols dropped both prosecutors from the lawsuit because he deemed that the allegations against them were less than precise. He gives Everett 30 days to amend his complaint in accordance with the dismissal order. And I didn't see what came of the lawsuit, probably because all the newspaper clippings I have are from the Sandpoint Daily Bee, and the owners were among those being sued. Like I said earlier, Everett died in 2010 at 79 years old. It seems that he went on to live the rest of his life with Phyllis and their blended family of nine kids, most of whom were grown and out of the house by the time the two married in 1975. They had 15 grandchildren and 10 great-grandchildren by the time Everett passed. Phyllis passes away almost eight and a half years after him on February 22, 2019 at 82 years old. 
So regardless of what anyone feels about this case, I do think that the jury probably made the correct decision with what they were presented. And I'm not saying that I believe he's innocent because truly I do not even know what I think. I have jumped back and forth so much through researching this case. I just think with the death like the penalty of the death sentence, the jury would have needed far more evidence that was a lot more solid than what was presented. So who was failed by the system? Was Everett Hoffmeister drugged through public humiliation and scrutiny following the tragic accidental death of his wife? Was his reputation ruined because he was unlucky enough for his wife to die suspiciously after having an affair and everyone judged him for it? Or did June's killer get away with it and go on to live the rest of his life exactly how he planned? My head and gut tell me two totally different things, so I don't know. (laughs) What do you think? I think he did it. I know. It's like so hard because that's kind of what my gut says, but it is like largely based on the affair and that you married her right after and like how weird it is that she would go to the law office at midnight. And she had strangulation marks. Yeah. Hit in the head and right. doesn't seem like you'd get that with a car. Like my gut feels like so sad for her and for June. Well, either way, whether it was accidental or intentional, but I feel she was likely probably betrayed by her husband but then I I also can't fully decide because there was so much like contradicting evidence presented and I feel like like I would feel bad for Everett and even Phyllis if he didn't do it because you know your life would never be the same after going to a murder trial even if you're acquitted if people still think you did it yeah I'm just so torn on my thoughts. I don't know. But what I do know is that June deserved to be here. She deserved to finish raising her children. She deserved to know her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they deserve to have her here loving on them. Her death was a tragedy no matter what. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palette cleanser is given by Charlie Waters, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz at In Pajamas Music. Find us on social media and leave us a five-star written review if you love the podcast. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters, and today we are going to be talking about lying. Have you ever told a lie? We really shouldn't lie. I'm sure you know because you listen to a crime podcast, but our bodies show signs when we lie. Did you ever know that? That's how lie detectors tell if you're lying. Now, one thing your body does if you lie is that your nose will get warmer. So next time you lie, which you better not be lying ever, feel your nose and it will probably be hot. Bye. Have a great day. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline to get resources in your state. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. 1-800-799-7233.